0: Welcome to the show. This is Alex Mason here with my friend, again, Becco Jang from our respective podcast, the Stock Stories podcast, as well as Value Investor TV. Becco, thanks for joining me again.
1: No, thank you. Uh, it's good to be back and uh, excited to talk about part two of Lenar Corporation.
0: I know. Yes. Yeah, so definitely, if you haven't listened to part one episode back and I released earlier, in the week, definitely check that one out first because that lays a lot of the foundation of just the business model, the history, that kind of stuff. Today's episode is really going to be focused, it's going to be like numbers heavy, focused on actual financials and we'll get into a few other things too. Awesome. Yeah, excited to dive in. Where should we start, Alex? Well, let's let's start, let's follow the money. Let's start at the top line. Start at the top line?
1: Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Uh, okay. So I have, um, I have their income statement open right here. Um, and you know, I think what's interesting about this. So why don't I like just quick paint a quick picture of the magnitude of, of revenue that we're talking about here. Um, so last year, 2020, they ended the year with about $22 billion in revenue. So that's the kind of the magnitude we're talking about here. And then, um, and then you, you know, obviously take out all the expenses, uh, cost of goods sold, R and D cost, SGNA, blah blah blah. And then ultimately, at the bottom line, you have about two point four billion dollars in net income, uh, which amounts to about ten percent, right? So twenty two down to two, about ten percent in net profit margin. Um, so that's kind of the big scope of this company. And if you look at the growth rate, so let's talk talk about the growth rate at the top line. So the past okay. for the past three years, uh, they've grown at about twenty percent year over year, um, compounded annual growth rate. And if you look, if you zoom out and look at past ten years, they've grown they've grown about uh, at about twenty two percent. So this is just a top line revenue. But what's really interesting is if you look at the income statement, right? The uh, not income statement, the bottom line, net income. Uh, the past three years they've grown at about fifty percent year-over-year growth, compound annual growth rate, and at about te- uh, and for ten years they've grown at about about forty percent, less than forty percent, thirty-eight percent. And so you're seeing kind of you know you're seeing top line growth over the over the t- last ten years and three years, and then if you look at sort of the bottom line, they've also grown quite quite well, um, but more significantly, so not only are they growing the pie but they're also optimizing the margins and growing the net income side of things also um, so mm-hmm. I thought that was um interesting um, because I thought you know the home growing the, the, the home building market I didn't I didn't think that they would they would have this sort of explosive growth but uh, certainly the Lauren w- was able to achieve this uh, in the past 10 years
0: yeah it's it's interesting Becco looking at Kind of turning our attention to the bottom line real quick of net income. You know, you talked about the past 10 years or so. It seems to me that the bulk of that money, the bulk of those earnings, have really just come through in the past, what, four years or so? I mean, back in, I'm looking at end of fiscal 2017, net income was only about 810 million. Then it just starts exploding like 2018, 1.7 billion, 2019, 1.8, billion. then 2020, 2.4 billion in net income. So really the first part of this decade, we weren't really seeing a whole lot of bottom line growth. And even though revenue seemed to be doing pretty well as far as growth was concerned, but that that earnings growth really showed up in the last couple of years. So what do you make of that?
1: Yeah, I think that's a. I think that's an astute observation. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with sort of like the the ultra you know ultra low interest rate environment. You know, we talked about it in the first episode, the home building industry as a whole is influenced heavily by the overall macro macro landscape, and namely the interest rate. Right, if the mortgage rate is, is low, people start buying houses, uh, and so I think that's you know what we're seeing here. I think might be a reflection of that. Um, and then also, uh, I guess that's more on the top line side of things. On the income side of things, um, I think they're doing a good job. So if you look at the, if you look at the operating margin, for example, operating profit margin. If you look at that, so uh, you said, um, you know, in, in two thousand seventeen, operating profit margin, you're talking about nine percent, and then net income about six percent. That number uh, went up to about thirteen percent. And ten percent, eleven percent, in twenty twenty, and so you're looking at a uh, you know margin optimization uh, over the over the last three years, uh, yeah. So I think that's um, you know I think I think um, you know they're they're uh, focusing on on that. It's, it's quite evident uh, just by looking at the numbers.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think one thing we should ask ourselves too is like how are they able to do that and. Will they be able to do that in the future? Uh, So one thing I'm thinking about is this top line growth. How are they able to do that other than just the fact that interest rates are low right now, people want to buy houses. What about the, let's talk about the supply side of homes and the fact that supply has been constrained so much in inventory that i think it allows a builder like lennar to maybe charge some higher prices going forward yeah
1: so i think you bring up a really interesting point um and maybe we can zoom out a little bit and talk about kind of a more of a macro take on this which is um if you look at kind of the uh, commodities that goes into you know building a house a big part of that is lumber right a lumber is a big part of um of, of building a house and if you look at lumber prices you if you've uh, sort of followed um, the news uh, in the financial market, lumber prices have been going parabolic. It's kind of absurd to, to see that, but you know I have this chart open here in Wall Street Journal article, um, let's see. So um, average, okay, so this is average price of lumber, um, the years between 2015 and 2019, it was hovering below $400 per thousand board feet so that's the common denominator common unit so a 1000 about you know under 400 now okay now in 2021 you're talking about um, same new unit you're talking about price of $1600 and so please it is, it is <laughs> parabolic growth it's like you're looking at a chart of a bitcoin or something right it's it's gotten you know it's gotten pretty bad and so what what you're going to see i think in the coming in the coming months and years Maybe not years, but in the coming coming months here, coming quarters, is that the cost of goods sold is obviously going to go go up, right? Because that's the good that you you have to you have to acquire to build houses, and then therefore um, the revenue is also going to go up. But then you're 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 kind of you have to contextualize this in the broader context of macroeconomic kind of inflation. So how much does a dollar go in 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 a world where uh, You've got, you know, huge, huge inflation everywhere. Um, so I think that's something that we have to think about. Um, yeah. And I, I think another thing I want to kind of point or sort of pivot, kind of pivot and, and, and look at is, um, and we'll get to this later on, but if you look at the income, net income growth, like, as I mentioned, it's growing pretty rapidly. Uh, they ended the year uh, with uh, 2.5, $2.47 billion in net income. And it has grown, you know, at, at, a, at a cliff of you know forty four, forty five uh, percent over the last three years. But if you look at income, you know, EPS, right, earnings per share, because as shareholders, that's what it really counts, right, per share count. And if you look at that, um, the EPS growth has actually been uh, performing not as quite uh, not as well as net income. Um, so you are looking at growth of about thirty two percent. Over the last three years, whereas the net income has grown at, uh, 45 percent. So, I think there is a share dilution uh, at play here, uh, which we'll sort of talk about uh, later. Um, but that's that's something that is something that to, to to point out for investors.
0: Definitely, yeah. There's it's always important as investors to look at obviously net income. How much is the company? making in absolute dollars, but then how much are we actually receiving as shareholders? And there's a lot of companies out there that make revenue, but don't make profits. There's a lot of companies out there that make revenue, and they make profits, but then their shareholders don't get a lot of those profits. And so we're trying to find ideally something with all three, right? Exactly. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see how this company performs in the coming decade, in the coming quarters, um, especially with the you know in the context of like the, uh, the cost of goods sold that we just talked about with lumber prices, and I think it'll also be really interesting because you know housing is sort of like the bellwether for economy, and so you know I think it'll be interesting to see how you know how they perform, and uh, even if you're not interested in you know buying this company as a you know as a shareholder, I think it'd be interesting to just to keep an eye on them as a, as a kind of a, you know, put your finger finger on, on the pulse of the economy kind of thing. Um, I think they, they can tell you a lot about how the, the macro landscape is changing.
0: Definitely. Yeah. I mean, these, these housing stocks, if people are buying houses, they're feeling confident as consumers, right? They have access to credit. They want to move, they want to expand their family, potentially. There's a, there's a lot of, good things associated, especially culturally, just in America with home ownership. And so I definitely agree with you there, Beko. Is there something, because you mentioned, I think, a key point about the major cost driver of this business being lumber, or at least one of the major cost drivers being lumber, with the price skyrocketing within the last year or two, what what do you see as far as risk to the company's financials as far as uh positive or negative whether lumber prices continue to go on this trajectory or go down yeah i'm curious about like those different scenarios and how that would play out
1: yeah I, i'd say kind of two things um this is what concerns me about a lot of the money printing that's happening is that money printing and you know a uh, very easy to monetary fiscal policy that's you know, that's been unfolding here for the last 10 Know, 10 years and, and now even more so after COVID is that, you know, you're seeing incredible levels of asset inflation, right? So asset inflation, you're talking about real estate, you're talking about stock prices. You know, these are, these are things that hold value, um, you know, when you have huge, huge inflation, you know, they'll, they'll sort of ride the curve with, with the inflation. And, you know, I think, I think what, what what's going to happen is you know, home prices are going to go up and therefore... Or sorry, so the commodities are going to go up, right, in price, and that's what we're seeing now. Commodities are going to go up, and therefore, as companies, you know, as a dynamic sort of you know dynamic entities in the capital market, what they're going to do is they're going to raise their prices too, and so they're going to start raising prices of these of these houses that they build. But the unfortunate, I think, reality is that there you can you you can only raise the prices of these houses so much, right? Because the the labor the the reward that you get with you know, um, you know, spending your time working, the wage isn't going to inflate at the same rate as assets. And so you now have a situation where assets like houses are increasing in value because of inflation and because companies can raise prices. But then you as consumers, your labor isn't inflating at the same rate, right? Your reward for working isn't inflating at the same rate. Therefore, you have a situation where you can't buy these things anymore. So I think that's something that to call out as a sort of a macro risk
0: to companies like this. (laughs) Hold up. So I got a comment on this. So I think people, it may not be so much. Can people buy these houses? I actually think they will still be able to, Mm. I think it's a matter of how far are you willing to stretch to Mm. buy these houses? Because one thing, this is several years ago when we were looking at purchasing our first home um, a couple of years back. And I was looking at some data as far as what the, the home average, home value or sales price to income level is, what those ratios tend to look like by country. And, of course, the U.S. is up there. It, I think it was above 3 or 4x for sure. It's probably more now. But one thing that really popped out at me is in a place like Australia, where home prices relative to annual incomes, that ratio was, I think it was above six or seven. Mm. And and of course, Australia has a very developed economy, a, a strong market, just like the United States does. And so I'm looking at the correlations and I'm thinking, OK, maybe in the United States, things could continue to go as long as credit is still plentiful i believe and this is also based anecdotally on what i've observed being on the sites of home builders which we discussed that a little bit last time is people are thirsty to buy these houses and they're willing to stretch if the bank is willing to give them the money if they can get away with putting five percent down they're gonna do it Mm -hmm. and so I suspect that because the supply of new homes is so low and the demand continues to be high, that builders will continue to raise prices to keep pace with those cost of goods sold, those lumber prices. Of course, it can't go on forever, but I am curious to see if it's gonna continue rising higher and higher for could be one, two, three more years just based on those other constraints I think
1: you bring up actually really good point, which is
0: um,
1: actually, you know, I think you can totally make the argument that, in fact, because of inflation, people are going to stretch themselves and buy these assets because when everything is inflating and, you know, what you have isn't worth the same, you have to put it in something that is going to appreciate in value, right? Stocks, real estate. Therefore, people are going to be more incentivized to buy these things because we know that you know, asset prices are going to inflate, whereas um, if you just hold in cash, uh, it's just going to melt away with inflation. So, I think I think that's also a, a very plausible outcome, and perhaps um, perhaps now I think about it more
0: more plausible outcome where people are uh, you know buying houses left and right. Yeah, I think there's a real possibility it could continue, but we'll have to to wait and see. Yeah, yeah. So, Becca, do you want to? turn our attention now to the balance sheet take a look at that
1: yeah let's do that um so so that was the income statement side of things um let's look at the balance sheet so you know what i like to do is you know when you have a balance sheet you have to really look at you know what what really takes a company out of the game and you know that is not like a mean you know a mean um uh, anemic growth or anything like that. You know what? What really takes a company out of the game is their debt. Um, so that's the first thing I like to look at. And so if you look at their debt, uh, they ended the year um, 2020 with about six billion dollars in debt. And I like to contrast that with um, free cash flow. And you want that ratio to be below three. Um, and so what what you're basically saying is. If the company were to use all their free cash flow to pay off their debt, it'll it'll take about three years. Or you want it to be sort of less than three years. Um, And if you look at that, um, you know, they've done a they've done a good job of sort of compressing that ratio down. So uh, starting in 2017, it was at six and then now down to about one. And um, yeah, so they've done a good job of cleaning out their balance sheet. Um, especially from the debt standpoint.
0: Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's something I really like too is it seems like most of the past decade, they did what most typical large companies do and that's just gradually increase their debt a little by little year after year. But then there is this turning point again around, it seems like around that same time period that we were discussing earlier around 2017, 2018, when things really started to take off for them that they made a conscious effort to reduce their long-term debt. And actually management stated in the most recent 10 K that delevering was a big priority for them. And I was like, Oh, okay. Usually I don't see company. I don't see companies management mention something like this, unless things are really bad, mm. <laughs> like yeah. already, like there's already a bad situation in the credit markets or in their particular industry and they're pleading with their shareholders saying, please don't worry, I'm taking care of your capital. I'm getting rid of the debt. But they're not doing that. I like how Lenar management seems to be pretty proactive here. I mean, if we look at just the past couple of years, they went in 2018 from eight and a half billion in long-term debt to below eight billion in 2019 to below six billion, about 5.6 billion in 2020. And that's a pretty steady decline. I mean, it takes, that's literally billions of dollars a year going into explicitly debt reduction. Mm -hmm. And that's not something I'm used to seeing, quite frankly, among large, large companies generally.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. I think that's something that, um, that we should commend. I think, um, you know, I think we should encourage, um, them to continue, um, if you're a shareholder.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So let's, uh, I also just want to bring up the cash too, because that's also another part of like Mm. why companies go bankrupt. It's not necessarily just the debt, Mm. it's general access to cash, access Mm. to capital. And one of those places is the bank account, right? Retain earnings that become cash. And what I really like about this business is that they've managed to keep a lot of cash here. So they have Over 2.7 billion in cash as of right now. And it was literally less than half of that a year ago, right, Becco? Are you seeing similar numbers as me? It was like 1.2 billion in 2019 and almost 3 billion now. Exactly. So that tells me that management, they're taking the gains off of these COVID home sales and they're just banking it right now and paying yeah. off debt with it, which seems very wise to me.
1: Yeah. I, I think, I think that's a, I think that's a smart move. Um, I think that's a smart move. Um, I, I also want to point out the, you know, this is something that's going to come up when we kind of talk about the valuation exercise, but something that i like to point out is the return on equity return on capital invested capital employed, just to see where they are um, in terms of that, the, those ratios. Uh, so I quickly ran the numbers. So in 20, so if you, if you just use 2020 numbers, you're talking about return on equity of about 13%, 13, 14%, and return on capital employed of, of about um, about 10%, 10 to 11%. So that's sort of the number, uh, the range we're talking about uh, here.
0: Um, just a note. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and can you briefly explain, Becco, maybe exactly what is the difference between return on equity and return on capital? Yeah, return on equity,
1: you just simply take the, it's very, very simple. Um, so you turn on equity, you just take the uh, uh, earnings and then divide it by equity. So you're basically saying with my equity base, this is how much I can make. And you want these ratios to be as high as possible. Uh, for example, like software companies traditionally, because they don't have a lot of assets. Uh, which trickles down to, into equity, um, but they still have you know explosive growth. Their return on equity is pretty substantial. You know we're talking about uh, you know 30, 40 percent. Um, and so that's the return on equity. Return on capital employee is you're, you're basically taking um, you're, you're taking the instead of the net income, you're taking operating operating income and then you're dividing that by a total asset minus current liabilities. So that that's what we're doing. So, so the reason why we're taking operating income instead of net income is we want to get rid of kind of, you know, jurisdiction, differences between jurisdictions with tax, tax implications. And you just want to compare, you know, apples to apples. Um, and then from the denominator standpoint, you're taking, uh, you're taking current, a total asset minus current liabilities. Uh, and so that you're really talking about capital that's been invested in the company, employed by the company. Um, so those are some of the difference, um, differences and there and there are other other metrics also return on invested capital uh is a, is, a, is another one um, but they basically paint the same picture uh, which is you know how efficient is this company at utilizing their balance sheet to um to uh you know to make money
0: on the income statement side of things Exactly. And thank you for that, Becco. Yeah, it was so precisely what you said. We're trying to determine by looking at these ratios, we're really just trying to understand is Lennar's management actually good with the assets and the money that they have? Are they making money with their current assets pretty much? And those different metrics are just slightly different perspectives of looking at that. Yeah, exactly.
1: And, and just, just a personal kind of anchor that I like to put in place is you know, I, look at, I like to look at companies that have high, high return on capital. Um, and um, usually the threshold for me would be like 15%. Uh, but you know, I'm also open to looking at companies that are below and I've personally bought companies that are below. So it's just a suggestion, uh, more so than like a hard cutoff for me.
0: Okay, for sure. Yeah, I think that's a good rule of thumb, too, just because you, you obviously don't want to invest in a company where management's getting poor returns on the money they're investing or poor returns on their assets. That's just not a good thing. Yeah. So tying that back to Lenar again, let's take another look. So return on equity, return on capital, somewhere in the 14 to 10% range, depending on uh, how exactly you calculate it for this past year. So that doesn't quite meet your 15% threshold, right, Becco?
1: No, it doesn't. It does not. Um, but, you know, I think that certainly is a red flag. You know, you want companies that can return higher growth. Because what it, what it basically means is that, you know, you have to kind of think about it from an uh, opportunity cost standpoint. So if I put in money now and I can expect about 15% or 14% of growth, um and then now you know you weigh that versus a company that can return you you know, uh, you know thirty percent, forty percent. And this is what this, you know. This is sort of a famous quote from Charlie Munger. He said the average, uh, the the over a long period of time, if you look at the stock price appreciation, and if you look at the growth rate of stock price appreciation, it usually matches return on equity.
0: Um, exactly. Yeah. That's I. I love that quote because it, it kind of just boils it down. You know, <laughs> he, he basically says, look, is management decent at deploying capital or not? Yeah. And over the long term, you will see as an investor whether or not they are able to do that. And the amazing thing about companies, which last time we talked about competitive advantages, companies with durable competitive advantages, one of the ways that you can tell that quantitatively is with something like a high return on capital with something like a high return on equity, particularly when this return on equity is non-leveraged. Um, and there's a, a great formula, uh, the DuPont return on equity formula, where you can actually break down the different components of return on equity to see how much leverage is working in the business to make that high. Cause Becca, I'm sure you've seen, sometimes there's companies out there that have really high returns on equity, But when you look deeper into the balance sheet, it's because they've leveraged up a lot.
1: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. To your point, you have to really sort of understand how these formulas work. Because, you know, if you think about what is equity, equity is, you know, basically asset minus liabilities. If you have a huge, huge liabilities, your asset minus liability is going to be a small number because you're subtracting, you know, asset minus a big number. So you're going to get a small number. So if you're dividing something with a very very small number, you're going to get a high ratio, and so they sort of artificially inflate that, and that's why you have to look at various derivatives of return on equity, right? Return on invested capital, return on capital employed, things like these. These sort of metrics take into account, um, or, or something. So, what's formulas. your favorite? I would like say if, return. If an on...
0: investor has a pick, one. What was your favorite? I
1: would say. I would say. Um... Return on return on capital employed, I would say.
0: I'd like to look at all of them. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. I mean, as you said, they're very similar, right? But but I'm I'm imagining you like that because it's showing the return on how much management is actually putting back into the business, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Cool. Exactly. How about you? You know, I like I, I honestly I'm more of a newbie at return on capital employed. I don't use it that much. Uh, I really like return on equity and then breaking it down into its various components with a DuPont formula. Cause to me, that that gives me I feel like a clear picture of a lot of things at once. Like I can look yeah. at profit margins, asset turns, and leverage ratio all at the same time. And then, you know, see how they combine together too. So I like yeah. ROE. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Let's move on to uh, some other questions. Now that we've looked at income and balance sheet, um, let's see. Let's um, let's look at the management and how they how they have sort of dealt with the excess cash and what their incentive structure looks like. So um, maybe walk us through what what they've done, Alex, with their
0: um, their excess cash. For sure. So. Yeah, I'm just looking real quick at the cash flow statement because that usually has a good good overview, particularly in the financing section. So one thing we can see is that this is the company that tends to issue stock. I mean, they repurchase their stock too, but they they have a lot of stock outstanding. And we talked a little bit earlier about the difference between net income and earnings per share, right. And how it's really important to make sure we're getting, ultimately getting that profit as owners. Um, so they're, they're diluted shares outstanding. So the amount of shares that they actually have back in 2000 and let's see what this data says, 2012, one second, the company had. 223 million shares outstanding. And that number has increased over 300 million. So they've actually diluted shareholders quite a bit over time. And usually this is a a combination of things like stock options being exercised, uh, secondary issues of stock on the stock market in order to raise more capital so they can fund their business. Um, So this is a business that does buy back stock. But more, more often than not, they're issuing stock. So they're raising money that way. So that's one thing that's happening with the cash. And then we also touched on already, they're buying back a lot of debt. They're retiring a lot of debt, getting rid of those notes, which we Becco and I both think that that's a great thing, that the company is becoming more fiscally conservative with their balance sheet. And then I have another major point is the dividend. This is a company that pays a dividend and they paid a dividend for a long time. And one interesting thing about this is if we actually look at the amount of dividends that they paid, it's been relatively minor for several years. They reduced their dividend around the beginning of this decade, somewhere around there, coming out of the financial crisis. And they've just held that steady at 16 cents a share for several years. And then this Amazing thing happened last year where the company increases dividends multiple hundreds of percents to, I think it's around 60 something cents a share now. Uh, They just massively increased it after years of keeping it steady. So to me, that's a big, big signal. What do you think about that, Beko?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. To your point, um, I haven't really looked into that aspect of it, how it's sort of the trend line, but I'm looking at it now. It's it's basically, um, you know, they've... They've um, issued dividends, uh, you know, two-digit two, two digit millions. Um, you know, uh, a couple years ago, it was about, you know, 51. The year before that, 49 million. The year before that, 37 million. So, you know, low, mid, kind of two-digit millions. And then come 2020, uh, they issued close to $200 million of dividend. So you're talking about four x uh, <laughs> of dividend payment. Um, what do I think about that? I, you know, I think, I, I think you know, a, a, as an executive of a company that's producing cash flow, you have a choice of whether to put that money back into the business because you are confident that the business can return high, re, you know, high high yields, or if you're not confident, you give it back to shareholders. You have to do one or one one or the other, or you know, you buy it back. That's another way of giving it back to shareholders. Um, I think they're just sort of weighing the, the pros and cons of it. And, you know, they might have, you know, maybe they're coming to a realization uh, that... Um, actually, if let me actually take that back. Because if you look, this is kind of interesting. So, okay, we, we, we said that dividend has been going up. Or not has been going up. It, you know, started step in two thousand twenty. If you look at the share purchase program and how much money they've spent every year, if you look at that, um, this past year they spent about um, three hundred million. The year before that, five hundred million. The year before that, three hundred million. So if you sum mm. those two things up, dividend with stock repurchase program. If you sum that up, that basically means you know total shareholder. Kind of return, uh, quote unquote, if you look at that, that's been kind of steady, I guess, um, more steady than the huge dividend payment. And so what you're seeing is the mix has sort of shifted. So in the past, it was more skewer, skewed towards uh, the share purchase program, and it has sort of shifted into more of a dividend payment in 2020
0: oh nice yeah thanks becca i had not noticed that and i appreciate you bringing that up because that's an interesting trend you know i haven't really seen that most of the time if i do see a shift in mix it's the other way around the company is maybe they're raising their dividend a little bit or holding steady but then they're just going crazy on the the share buybacks because that tends to be in vogue right now in this day and age with taxes and everything so I'm wondering, does the management think that their stock is a little overpriced maybe, and that's why they're putting less money into buying back stocks, so they just rather pay it out as dividends? I'm wondering if that's what they're trying to communicate with how they're deploying their cash.
1: Yeah, I suppose that's like the the rationale um, for doing that. Um, You know, why would, I guess we can ask this question, why would... You know, why would they, let's say it's the same $500 million you can choose to send it out as a dividend checks, or you can buy your stocks, obviously there are benefits to just buying your share back because it's more tax efficient, right? They're not taxed at the income level for shareholders. Um, So I guess, yeah, to your point, maybe, um, maybe the management believes that the stock is overpriced at this point, so they're not going to buy and therefore they're just going to send out these dividend
0: checks hmm yeah i think it'll be more evident in years to come maybe in the next one or two years if there's dividend growth because if there's if there's significant dividend growth even after this big stair step up then to me that would indicate that this is a major priority for management they they want to be known as a strong dividend paying company and want to establish that reputation whereas if they just kind of keep it the same then to me, that just means, all right, this is a cyclical company that's been holding off on sharing the rewards with shareholders in a certain way because they really wanted to beef up their balance sheet, beef up their revenues, and they spent an entire decade doing just that. They've, they're healthy as far as a lot of the numbers we've discussed already. So I think this is kind of like a thing where management's like, hey, guys, uh, thanks for owning our stock. We appreciate it. Um, here's a bunch of money. Thanks for waiting and <laughs> waiting through the the recovery with us. Here's here's a big payout. I'm wondering if it's something like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think that would be interesting to see how this trend line continues. I think another thing that we should sort of think about is, you know, when, when, when COVID hit, I think there was a lot of, you mentioned it's really vogue and trendy and chic to do buybacks. When COVID hit, I think there was a lot of discussions about banning buybacks, right? I mean, there's like government bailouts and then now like you're going to take the government bailout and buy your stocks. That didn't sit well with a lot of people. And there was a lot of kind of public anger towards big banks, airline industries doing these things, you know, exhibiting these behaviors for the, past, for the past several years. So I think that also might be at play speculation, but, um, you know, I think that that's also maybe a cultural aspect to this also, social cultural aspect.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting, because that's how buybacks used to be viewed, too. Back when uh, what was that guy's name, uh, Singleton with Teledyne, mm-hmm. who he was just buying back tons of his company stock <laughs> back in the early 20th century, I think it was. And nobody was doing this at the time. And people kind of looked at him like, are you really that bad of a capital allocator that all you can do is just buy back your own stock? Like, go expand your business. Yeah, But investors benefited hugely from that so yeah it'll be interesting to see like how that how that shifts exactly
1: let's um let's shift gears and and talk about um let's talk about uh the management's incentive structure uh because i think that tells you a lot about how you know what they're motivated by right what what's uh what's um what's uh the famous quote by charlie munger show me incentive structure and I'll show you outcome something along those lines. (laughs)
0: Yeah. All right. I wouldn't be surprised that he said that.
1: Let's take a look. Um, all right, here we go. Sorry guys. I'm just pulling out my notes. Have you read, I guess, um, while i'm pulling this up alex have you read um about have you read their proxy statements on how they're incentivized
0: i have not,
1: not okay sorry i got a lot of notes here uh, oh here we go okay all right how is incentive structure uh formulated for this company Lennar so incentive for uh, so there's ba- there's ba- base salary and then cash incentive and an equity incentive I think what's important is to look at um, incentive plan for equity, because that is sort of the biggest portion of their, their comp package. If you look at that, there are four metrics that they really focus on. One is gross profit. Two, return on capital. Three, return uh, return on total shareholder return. And then lastly, debt to EBITDA ratio. So there are f- four, four things that they are measured against. So let me repeat that. Gross profit. So really talking about the income side of things, optimizing for, you know, higher price than cost of goods sold, right? Gross profit. Return on capital. We talked extensively about that. Three, return on total shareholder return. So basically stock price appreciation. And then lastly, debt to EBITDA ratio. And so I think, mm. yeah, what do you think about that first off?
0: Yeah, I like that. I love that it's, it seems mostly tied to the actual performance of the business and not just shareholders, but I do like that there is a shareholder component uh, because that, that does incentivize them to do things like buy back stock or pay dividends um, and make sure that their earnings per share is growing, but it can't grow uh, inorganically too much because there are those other metrics there, like the debt to EBITDA. So I like it. I'm curious is you have it up in front of you. Are there certain caps or thresholds for things like debt to EBITDA that they can't cross?
1: Yeah, so I don't have those numbers in front of me, um, but they're certainly in the proxy statement. Um, Usually, you know how these things work is that, you know, they set like 100% threshold and then like, you know, 200%, 300% threshold. And if you meet like, you know, 200, 300%, your equity comp, you know, uh, will vary, uh,
0: against those metrics. So, um,
1: I don't have those numbers in front of me,
0: unfortunately. Okay. But what yeah. do you think of the overall structure conceptually?
1: Uh, I think it makes a lot of sense. I think it makes a lot of sense. I, I, I'm really for companies that have return on capital as part of their, um, as part of their incentive structure. Cause so I think that's super important and underappreciated, um, What I don't want to see is, you know, people, uh, have no regard for the balance sheet and the, the efficacy of their balance sheet as, as, as measure against their income,
0: um, so I think it's, I think it's well-structured. Nice. Yeah. And, and another thing I love to see too, is when management rewards their employees with stock to align those incentives with their workforce. I don't see it that often other than maybe a employee stock purchase program or something. But that's another thing I like too. Yeah, definitely. I think it's, I, I'm hof- hopefully,
1: I mean, maybe this is sort of the echo chamber of San Francisco, Silicon Valley kind of uh, way of operating. Um, but I think that it's becoming more trendy to offer you know, stock options to employees. I know like big tech companies obviously do that, not just for high, you know, high ranking executives. Uh, in the past, I know it has been only reserved for high high ranking executives, but now every employee gets a you know, part of their comp packages is, is that you know you get stock option, uh, stock options for the company that you work for. Uh, so, yeah, I definitely want to uh, definitely want to see some of that uh, also, where everyone gets to participate in the upside of the company. Yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah.
1: Awesome. So that's about management. Um, let's see where are we. Um, let's let's quickly, Alex, if you don't mind, let's quickly run through some of the valuation exercise um, and, and come to kind of, um, you know, just do a little exercise on discounted kind of cash flow and and see uh, where this company sits and and talk about some of the assumptions. Okay. Yeah. Let's do it. Let's talk about it. All right. So. I'll just go ahead and run through my exercise, what I've done, and some of the assumptions baked into the calculation. And then we can kind of talk about, um, you know, we can tweak the numbers in real, uh, in real time to see how the numbers change uh, changes. So um, I'm going to take the initial cash flow of about $2 billion um, because it's sort of the average of the past over the past three years. So I'm going to take the about 2, 2.4 is kind of the initial cash. And I'm going to peg the growth rate at about 20% for the next three years. And then in subsequent years, 12%, and then down to 10% in year 10. So kind of 20, 12, 10 growth rate, and then discount rate that I like to use is just 10%. Um, so use that as 10% discount rate and then share outstanding. You got debt level and cash and you run the numbers and I get about
0: hundred and ten dollars per share quick pause real quick can you please explain for maybe a listener doesn't know what a discount rate is what is that and why is it important
1: yeah so it, this is sort of um kind of at the crux of why the uh, the stock market has been going crazy is because there is no time value of money anymore because the interest rate is is basically zero and so um what discount rate is is you know, the money that, that a company generates now, $10 or maybe like $100, let's say, $100 that you generate now versus $100 you generate in the future is going to be different because there's what's called time value of money, right? $100 in the future is going to be worth less because of inflation and everything else that goes with with that. So what you want to optimize for is the highest cash flow discounted back to the present time. And so you want to discount the $100 that you make in the future um with that discount rate back to the present value. And so that's what discount rate is. I like to use 10% because I like to use 10% as sort of the 10 to 15% is kind of what I use. I, I do that because um it's the kind of the the you know uh lowest risk kind of return that I expect out of my
0: investment. Nice. Thank you so much for explaining that. So effectively what you're doing is it's kind of like a reverse. I guess, annual growth rate formula, if, if you were to say it like that, instead of saying, okay, if you invest $100 in X amount of years, it becomes a thousand, you're basically saying this company, if it makes a thousand in year 10 or whatever it is, if we assume a certain growth rate, we're discounting it, right? To the present, like you said, and therefore these shares today are worth this. Yeah, Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. And, and one thing
1: that i like to mention as the reason why you have this crazy stock market frenzies is because at the current at the present time, we don't have uh, time value of money anymore because it's all it's all sort of washed away. Uh, and so what you're seeing is, you know, people are talking about growth. You know, people are focused on growth stocks and, and the future and the growth earnings and the future future earnings. And that's because there is no discount rate at the present time. And so, hundred dollars you earn the future is equally worth hundred dollars you earn today, because there is no discount rate. So, you know, companies come can come out and say, you know, we're going to we're we're going to make you know we're going to make you know ten million dollars, two hundred million dollars, three hundred million dollars in the future. Well, because the discount rate is zero, you basically value that at the present time value. And so that's why you have these crazy you know multiple expansion um, because there's no discount uh, discount rate has been. Yeah, squashed and minimized because of the macro environment that we live in today.
0: Exactly. And yeah, I agree with you. It's, uh, it's really distorting some valuations of a lot of parts of the market. So bring it back to Lenar real quick. You mentioned you did the calculation and what is the per share value based on that 10% discount rate? Yeah. If I do that, I get about $110.
1: $110.
0: $110 and just for everyone's knowledge the current price today Lenar ticker symbol LEN closed at $107 today as we're recording this so so what that means becco is if you were to purchase at $110 let's say today you would expect over the length of time in your model that you would make 10% annually is that basically how it would work from the investors perspective who would be buying those shares at that price in your model.
1: Yeah, so if this were to work out, you're talking about these assumptions being right. And these assumptions are the growth rate in the next 10 in the next, you know, 1 to 3 years is going to be 20% and then you know 4 to 6 years about 12% and 7 to 10 years about 10%. And this is also assuming that we're not, you know, doing any kind of share buybacks either. And so that, that could also juice the returns for investors. Um, so that's, that's kind of the assumption here. Um, um, yeah. And, and, you know, what we like to do as investors is that, you know, you calculate intrinsic value, but then you want to get it at a discount of that value to protect against, you know, vicissitudes of the market, you know, tomorrow, you know, we could have war and, and the whole market would go crazy and, you know, we could lose half of our value. So we want to make sure that we protect against downside. And so we want to make sure that you get price below this intrinsic value so um, I know we talked about this in previous episode Uh, both of our respective listeners complain that we talk about companies that are always overvalued at least in our (laughs) analysis Um, but that's kind of the
0: that's kind of the idea and yeah yeah I mean at the end of the day look I've been tempted I was looking today so we're so this is May 4th may the 4th be with you I was looking at a bunch of stocks today in my watch list, and I went over one of my watch lists is more of like the growth oriented companies. And these stocks were coming down a lot. But then I looked at what I anticipated their intrinsic value to be still nowhere near what they're probably worth. And so that's why it's just so important not to be too tempted, because margin of safety really is just such a fundamental part of investing and specifically value investing uh, so that's why we're protecting ourselves. So in this situation, Becco, we, we've got in your model around $110 per share based on your assumptions, current share price is $107. So what does that mean? Does that mean basically it's more or less fairly valued in your opinion? I think that's,
1: that would be, that would be my answer. Um. You know, I think another thing that I want to mention about the intrinsic value is that you want to get it under, but at the same time, you have, you have companies that are doing exceptionally well and that are growing at, you know, high double digit rate. If that's the case and you've got solid business with like great mode around them, then I'm okay paying, you know, at or a little bit above intrinsic value. So it's not, you know, set in stone that you have to get it, always get it below. But you know, obviously the cheaper, the better. <laughs> as, as us, you know, value investors and bargain hunters.
0: Um, yeah, so just another comment there on the intrinsic value. For sure. Yeah. And that's a great point point. and tying that back to a point we mentioned earlier in the conversation about return on equity over the long term, we're probably going to see our returns mimic or mirror that return on equity figure. So yes, these models are important. Yes. It's important to buy with a margin of safety. But that being said, the price that we buy at tends to matter less the longer we hold the company, particularly if it's growing at a solid rate. So we can keep that in mind too, is our holding period, right? Definitely, definitely, exactly. And
1: um, yeah, you know, I think um, that's why it's sort of important to you know, another you know, one strategy people people do and often employ is you know dollar cost averaging. It's 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 always it's always so important to start early, um, because time you know if you start early, times and uh, times on is on your team and it can make your returns a lot
0: a lot lot better uh, if you start early. So, for sure, yeah, because you can you can buy and it's a little bit overvalued and buying is a little bit undervalued. Over the long term, it should even out if you pick exactly. the right the right company. Exactly. Yeah. Any closing well, think... thoughts Becca, one uh, on Len. Take a simple on yeah. you got any other, any final thoughts? Oh man, I think I you know, well
1: first of all, this was fun, Alex. Um I had a lot of fun and uh um you know, I think we we talked about this company in in, in diverse perspectives with diverse perspectives. Um, I thought we uh, covered a lot of grounds in this in this episode and previous one as well. Um, this company is an interesting one. I think, you know, I, I'm not really familiar with home building, uh, industry. You're, you're much more familiar with it, Alex, than I, as a consumer, as a potential buyer of a house. Um, uh, but, um, but yeah, I, th- I thought this was, this was, um, interesting exercise to look into, uh, to get a glimpse of what the, what the home building e- industry, uh, look like from an investor standpoint.
0: Oh yeah, for sure, Becco, and yeah, I, I had a lot of fun too. I I think we covered the gamut on this. We we looked at a lot of numbers, looked at some metrics. We talked about the story, the business overview, how it actually makes money, demographic trends. We talked about commodity prices. I I think we did this company justice. So yeah. thank you for taking the time to to research this and and spend some time with me. No, this
1: was a, this was a pleasure. Thanks, Alex. we will do it again.
0: Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Awesome. Let's close us out. All right. And uh, just for everyone, just to remind everyone, Becco Jang is one of the hosts and founders of Value Investor TV. Go ahead and check out his podcast if you're listening, happen to be listening on a mind show, Stock Stories, and just get some great company insight
1: yeah I'll, mi- I'll mention the same guys uh if you're listening to the TV podcast definitely go check out alex's podcast stock stories it's podcast a lot of good stuff there um so go please go check him out awesome well thanks alex and uh i'll, I'll talk to you later
0: all right see you bye